Jesus said, by this all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But we have to admit that because of sin, this is not always easy. This is not an easy command within the church. See, we cannot forget that, <coughs> excuse me, we need each other as Christians. We will not make it to the end without each other. We have to constantly remind ourselves that when we were saved, it was a package deal. You got Jesus and you got his bride, the church. Can't separate those two realities. But it's not crazy to think that at times it's going to be difficult to love other people, or it's not crazy to think that at times it's going to be difficult for other people to love us. But that does not excuse us to separate the reality that we've been reconciled with God from the reality that we've also been reconciled with one another. As Christians, we share life together. And this is what we're going to meditate on this morning in the in Paul's letter to Philemon, if you haven't, go ahead and turn in there to your, in your Bibles to this brief letter of Paul. Uh, you'll find it between his letter to Titus and the letter to the Hebrews. Originally, I was going to only preach the first seven verses, but I am going to attempt to preach the entire letter this morning. So be praying for me. Uh, but Samuel said he wasn't here, so I had as much time as I needed. Uh, so we'll see. Let's start in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I want to argue this morning that our text helps us see how the gospel reconciles us to one another as believers in Christ Jesus. But before we jump into our text, I have to acknowledge and I want to acknowledge that our passage does deal with a difficult relationship between a slave and a master. And I want to be clear that the Bible never once endorses slavery or even speaks of it in a positive light. But we also have to be careful we don't impose slavery as we know it from our American history on to the text of Scripture. We know that through the transatlantic slave trade, uh, men, were, men and women and children were stolen from their homes. And this act is actually condemned in Scripture. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, 4, 1 Timothy, Timothy, all make it very clear that man-stealing is a sin against the most holy God. Slavery, as we know it in our history in America, ripped personhood from slaves based on their race, based on their ethnicity. They were not viewed as human beings. They were merely property used at the will and the pleasure of the master. However, slavery during the time of the early church and even in the Old Testament was never race-based. There were laws protecting the personhood and the dignity of slaves. Slaves held a large part of the population and weren't necessarily on the lowest rung of the social ladder. Slaves could be doctors, lawyers, teachers, equivalent to the financial advisors. They could be high-ranking officials, though there were still some who served in the households. Most slaves, though, could potentially pay off their debt and become free. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say slavery was fine or it was happy or it was a peaceful time and it was okay. That's actually very different than what con- and contrary to what Scripture says. In Paul's letter, other letters, we read that he's telling them, do not treat your slaves the way the world around you treats them, implying that it's not always the best treatment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells slaves, if you have the opportunity, gain your freedom. It's better to be free. So I'm not attempting to excuse the institution of slavery, especially during the time of the early church. Slavery was never seen as a good and natural thing of God's creation. It was a distortion of what God had created as perfect and good. But we do need a better picture and understanding of this context to understand what Paul is going to be asking of Philemon. And it's not equivalent to what we've seen in our own history. Turning to our text, though, I have three points this morning, three truths I want us to see about the gospel. One, the gospel creates a shared life. Two, the gospel tears down the dividing wall of hostility. And three, the gospel empowers us to love like Jesus loves. One, the gospel creates a shared life. Though this is a personal letter to Philemon, it should stand out to us when we read verse 2 that the church is also addressed in this letter. Even though this letter is a personal letter, it's not a private letter. This was intended to be read in front of the entire church. You can see how uncomfortable this might make Philemon. The church is going to have to come around Onesimus and Philemon and help them fight for reconciliation. The church is there to hold Philemon accountable. 
See, in the church, we have to affirm the reality that my business isn't just my business. We have to see and affirm the reality that our lives affect other believers and that my business is actually our business. Paul addresses the whole church because Philemon is going to be held responsible by the church for how, they respond, for how he responds to Paul's instruction. See, we can't confuse a personal relationship with Jesus for a private one. Again, you got the church when you got Jesus. This doesn't mean every detail of your life has to go before the entire church. In some situations, that may be the, the case, depending on how public a sin might be, how public a disagreement between, a brother, between brothers or sisters might be. It might need to be coming before the entire church. But the point is more of a willingness to be open with your brothers and sisters in Christ about what's going on in your life. It's a recognition that because of our shared faith in the gospel, Jesus produces a shared life that's one of mutual care amongst Christians who have covenanted together. So in our shared life, in the gospel, we should be compelled to seek out other saints who are going to guide us with wisdom and truth from the word of God. But this can't happen if we privatize our lives. It can't happen if we want to shut other people out. As members of the family of God, we have to recognize that our relationships, the interactions we have with one another, actually say something about the God whom we claim to have faith in. Look at verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because... I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. Paul hears of Philemon's faith in Jesus and sees it evidenced in the way that he loves the saints. And this stirs in Paul a heart of thankfulness. It stirs in him gratitude, not to Philemon though, but to God. He hears of the faith in Jesus. He hears of the display of this love through the love for the saints, and Paul is thankful to God for the work that he has done in Philemon's life. And a question I want to ask you is, are you thankful for what you're seeing God do in the lives of your brothers and sisters here at Park Hills? When was the last time you just took a moment to sit back and think about what the Lord is doing in other people's lives and thanked God for that work? You see, when you show love towards the saints, you're testifying to the goodness of God. You are showing the worth of Jesus in the way you love his bride. But we can't miss a key detail in this verse. Look back at the verse. Verse 5, towards the end. The love that you have for all the saints. For all the saints. There's no concept of love shown to only a portion of the saints. There's no room for a contentment with having an attitude towards another saint that communicates an indifference as to whether or not they remain here with you. Love for all the saints doesn't show itself when you ignore a brother or sister in Christ. Love for all the saints doesn't show itself when you gossip. Love for all the saints doesn't show itself when in your heart you find joy and comfort when you see the mistakes of others happen. Love for all the saints fights against any form of partiality. Love for all the saints 
shows grace instead of impatience. It seeks to understand instead of demanding to be understood. Love for all the saints finds forgiveness sweeter than resentment. Your interactions with others in the church says a lot about what you personally believe about God. But look at Paul's prayer over their shared life in verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now that phrase, sharing of your faith, could be better understood as the partnership you have in the faith or the shared life that you have from the shared faith that you have. But the point is Paul's prayer is that the life of that the life Philemon shares with those in the church meeting in his home would result in a deeper understanding of the faith that they have in Christ Jesus and it would actually strengthen the bond that they have as brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants to see the faith lived out in their relationships. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We show mercy because we've been shown mercy. We are patient because God has been patient with us. We welcome in those who have wronged us but are seeking repentance because that's exactly what we experienced with God. And we encourage one another to do these things as well. But with Onesimus standing there in front of Philemon, Philemon has to ask himself, am I going to do Am I going to extend? Am I going to show the very things that I've been shown in Christ? And we have to ask, will the church encourage it? Will they hold him accountable to that? You see, as you learn of the blessings you have in Christ, it's not meant for you to hoard it up and keep it only to comfort your own soul. The knowledge should lead you to a contribution of the life that you share with others who share the faith you claim to have. See, one of the hidden dangers of a church that loves theology is when it loves theology so much that it fails to recognize how that knowledge of God influences the way they rightly interact with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to use what we learn in the word to spur us on for good works. We don't just hoard it trying to become puffed up with knowledge and conceit in what we know. It's to empower our lives together as Christians. But Paul goes on to explain the grounds for his prayer in verse 7. Look there. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul says the hearts, literally the innermost being of these Christians, their souls have been refreshed by Philemon. The imagery is of a saint who's tired, who's exhausted, who's struggling to press on. And Paul says, I'm encouraged. I find joy because you are caring for their souls and it's causing them to press on. You are refreshing them. Can the brothers and sisters here in this room say that your love is a refreshment to their soul? Are you refreshing them? What does refreshment look like? It could look like many things, actually. A few examples might be offering to watch the children of the single mother so that she could have uninterrupted time in prayer and the word. Or hearing about the struggles of a brother and sister and instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to pray for you, taking their hand and walking alongside them as they seek to glorify God. It could look like speaking the truth of God's word into the life of a saint whose soul is downcast and they're struggling. 
It could look like encouraging a saint by telling them how thankful to God you are for them and for the ways you see God working in their life. All of those ways are ways to refresh the soul of a brother and sister in Christ. But whatever the refreshment looks like, it's mainly about reminding brothers and sisters in Christ that Christ loves them and reminding them of that in the, way, in the things you say and the things you do. I mean, it's shocking that even Paul is refreshed in the text. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. Paul was comforted, and he was joyful because of how the other saints were being loved by, Paul, by Philemon. Paul, who's writing from prisons, who is in chains, was strengthened by knowing that other saints were being cared for by the love of Philemon. And this is a comfort for us because it reminds us that joy and comfort aren't exclusive to your circumstances being ideal. One of the blessings of our shared life is that even in difficult circumstances, the Lord can still offer us comfort and joy by just hearing about what God's doing in the lives of other people. We don't become jealous and envious of what the Lord is doing. We become thankful, and we find joy and comfort in that. The refreshment we can offer one another through our love in our shared life gives us the refueling we need to press on to make it to the end. But the same power of the gospel that creates this shared life is the same power that tears down the walls that would seek to divide us. Second truth this morning, the gospel tears down the dividing wall of hostility. Starting back in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Paul knows that his apostleship, given to him by Jesus himself, he knows that this gives him the boldness, the confidence to speak on behalf of Jesus and command Philemon to do something. But there's something that has much more power than the right to enforce the authority that his position warrants. Paul prefers to appeal on the basis of love. And Paul doubles down on this at the end of verse 9. Look at how he identifies himself. He doesn't identify himself to Philemon as Paul the Apostle, chosen by Jesus. It's an appeal of humility and highlights the position of powerlessness that Paul has. He identifies himself as an old man, as a prisoner. The church may recognize his authority as an apostle, but the world doesn't. It's almost like he's hinting to Philemon. The world may recognize your authority as a master, but the church doesn't. And the question that Philemon's going to have to answer in his mind is, what's more important, who I am in the world or who I am in Christ? And how's that going to influence my actions? Paul's saying, I, I could pull rank. I could just tell you what to do, but what good is that? Isn't it better to, with tenderness, fight to see the love of Christ grow and flourish within the church? You see, when you've truly experienced the love of God as Paul had experienced, you do whatever you can to extend that love towards others so that, the, so that that love of Christ continues to grow and flourish in the church. So his appeal was motivated by God's love, but look at the content of his appeal in verse 10. What's he appealing for? I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. 
Onesimus, fleeing, after fleeing from Philemon's household, linked up with Paul while Paul is in prison. And this familial language used here by Paul emphasizes the massive event that had taken, a place, taken place in, Philemon, in Onesimus's life. He'd become a Christian. He's become a saint. Through Paul, Onesimus learns of his need to be reconciled to God. He hears of the holiness of God and feels the weight of his sin in comparison to this God. He knows God's judgment that is owed to him because of his natural desires to follow his own ways and his own passions and his own desires. But at the same time, he learns of the forgiveness offered in Jesus. He feels the relief offered by the generous words of Jesus, repent and believe. His shame is exchanged with hope. His sin is exchanged for righteousness. His love for self is exchanged for love for God. The comfort he used to find in his sin, he now finds in Christ. In all of this, Onesimus had come to know the love of God and had been reconciled to him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Onesimus has become a spiritual son to Paul. Even while in prison, Paul had the privilege to share the good news of Jesus with Onesimus. He had the privilege to share the gospel and see Onesimus come to repent of his sins and trust in Jesus with his whole being and start following him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, open doors to share the gospel don't just come at the most convenient times in your life. Imagine the witness you leave when your circumstances appear to be at their lowest, yet you're still found testifying to the worth of following Jesus, even in that moment. You see, we're starting to get a glimpse of that dividing wall of hostility beginning to crack. Master and slave now share the faith that produces a shared life between them. But Paul magnifies the change that's taken place in Onesimus' life when he gets to verse 11, when he uses a bit of a wordplay. Formerly, he was useless to you, but he is indeed useful to you and to me. See, the name Onesimus means useful. Now, we don't know what Paul means by this exactly. Was Onesimus lazy while he was there? Was he known to cut corners with the work that ended up causing more problems than solutions? We don't know. But what is clear is now that Onesimus is a Christian, a change has taken place. Now, I think it would be wrong just to see this as meaning Onesimus is now a hard worker. That may be part of it. But I think what Paul's getting at even more is the fact that now that Onesimus shares the faith that Philemon has, and they now have a shared life together, he's actually going to play a role in the sanctification process of Philemon. They need to work together to grow in Christ, just like all Christians work together to help each other grow in Christ. He's now useful to them because he has figuratively locked arms with them and has committed to laboring alongside them as a fellow family member of the family of God. He is one who will be used by God to fight alongside them to see that they make it to the end when Christ returns. Onesimus is now useful to Philemon, but not as a better slave, but as a brother in Christ who has a role to play in the faith that they share in Christ. And this should comfort you, Christian. 
You are useful to everyone in this room. God will use you in their life. He doesn't need any of us, but he does use all of us. The dividing wall of hostility continues to crumble. Not only have they been saved by the same grace, not only do they share this new life together, but Onesimus is no longer an expendable piece of property. He's now an instrument in the hands of God to be used in the life of Philemon. And recognizing this, Paul insists it's best for him to return to you, Philemon. Look at verse 12. I'm sending him back, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. See, Paul knows Philemon's heart. He knows Philemon wants to to ensure that Paul is taken care of, especially while he's in prison. He knows that Philemon would be there for him if he could. And that's why he says, "I, I could have kept him with me. I could have kept him here to serve me in your place. But, again, what's more important? The physical needs of Paul or the spiritual need of reconciliation that needs to take place between two brothers in Christ? But Paul also knew that the appearance of good deeds lacks authenticity if they're done by coercion. Look at our next verse, verse 14. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. The fruitful roots of our obedience to Christ and our love for each other find their nutrients in the soil of God's love, not in obedience, or not not in obligation. Now, there are no coincidences in life either. God, who is in control of all things, has a purpose for all things. And he picks us up in verse 15. Look at there. For this For this, perhaps, this is why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. God had allowed Onesimus to flee his physical enslavement so that he would find spiritual freedom in Christ through hearing the gospel Paul was preaching. You see, all of us are enslaved through our sin. We think we're in control of our passions and our desires, but really they control us. It's not until God graciously freed us in Christ to where we no longer are in bondage to our sin, but we're freed to follow Jesus and to serve him. What Onesimus and Philemon are about to realize is that the spiritual freedom that they both have experienced in Christ has radical implications for the life they now share in Christ. Their new brotherhood is going to require a lot of them. The wall of hostility has completely fallen. They share the same faith. They now share life together. Philemon's been told he needs Onesimus just like he needs other believers. He's been told Onesimus needs him like the other believers need him. And now they're no longer identified as slave and master, but brothers in Christ. Paul has slowly shown that through the work of the gospel, both Philemon and Onesimus are equal in the sight of God, and they need to treat each other as such and see each other as such. You see, a reality in which true gospel, the true gospel reigns supreme 
the institution of any kind of slavery cannot exist. It dies. So Onesimus, now reconciled to God and a partner in the faith, no longer has the identity of a slave, but instead is a forever brother to the saints. And this includes Philemon. And this should be an encouragement to us. Whatever way the world identifies you is a temporary identity. The identity you have in Christ is an eternal identity. But the gospel not only tears down the dividing wall of hostility between believers, the gospel also empowers us to love like Jesus. Look to verse 17. The gospel empowers us to love like Jesus. So if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Welcome him back in the way you would welcome me, Philemon. If God has extended loving mercy and grace towards Onesimus, on what grounds would Philemon have to withhold that same thing from Onesimus? You see, if we fail to love those who have offended us when they come seeking repentance and seeking to be reconciled to us, it's like we're living as if the wall of hostility has never been destroyed. We discredit the work of the gospel in our lives if we're, will, if we're unwilling to forgive, if we're unwilling to extend mercy, if we're unwilling to extend grace and see that this relationship is reconciled. But reconciliation requires at least two people. Onesimus has to want the reconciliation too. And for love's sake, we know he does. We know this because he's the one who's actually delivering the letter. In Colossians, he's one of the two men listed when uh, Paul writes the letter to Colossians. Philemon's house was in Colossae, so Paul writes Colossians to all the churches in Colossians, but then he also writes his personal letter to Philemon and sends Tychicus, and he sends Onesimus with the two letters. And so it probably would have been a lot easier and potentially safer for Onesimus just to stay back with Paul and have somebody else deliver the letter. But it wouldn't have been right. He knew he needed to go and be reconciled. And having no clue what would happen when he got back, he agrees to return and hand deliver the letter and ask for forgiveness. He agrees to have the difficult conversation that has to be had. And this is a lesson for all of us. If we aren't open to having the difficult and sometimes awkward conversations with those we've offended or with those who have offended us, Reconciliation will never truly happen. We need to, for the, for, the, for the love of Christ Jesus' sake, be willing to have those awkward and difficult conversations. Reconciliation with God required an omission of an offense towards God. So why would we expect it to be any different when reconciling with one another? But check out how we see the gospel continuing to empower Paul to love like Christ loves. Verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. We aren't told exactly why Onesimus leaves. And the reason why he leaves, why he fled, doesn't really matter. What matters is the love of God working through Paul in this moment. He knows there might be some financial hit Philemon has taken because of whatever Onesimus had done or had caused in his leaving. And just as Jesus says to the Father, whatever sin 
they've committed, charge it to my account. Paul says, whatever he owes you, charge it to my account. Charge it to me. He wants Philemon to know if you're in any situation where repayment is absolutely necessary, I'll take care of it. With my own hand, I write this, I will take care of it. But whatever the repayment is, it's not worth more than the reconciliation that needs to take place between you and Onesimus. He's saying, don't withhold the repayment. Don't withhold reconciliation for the repayment of debt. That's not really going to offer you true peace, Philemon. Reconcile with this brother. Nothing is more costly than the blood that reconciles us to God and to each other. And this is why he closes verse 19 by saying, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. It's believed that Paul is the one who led Philemon to Christ. And so Paul takes one more opportunity to remind Philemon that the life that he now lives in God's love is in fact because Paul didn't withhold that love of God from him when he was in his sin. So Paul asks Philemon, on the base of Christ's love, for the sake of Christ's love, drop the debt, Philemon. Don't hold it against him. Just as your debt to God has been forgiven through Christ's account, forgive Onesimus' death through my account. And Paul reiterates his request in verse 20, but with a slightly gentle, more gentle tone. Verse 20, yes, my brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul identifies his heart in verse 12. I'm sending Onesimus back to you. My very heart. Philemon can refresh the heart of Paul by loving Onesimus the way that Jesus loves Onesimus. But we're left wondering, what will Philemon do? The church who's hearing This letter read out loud is wondering, what is Philemon going to do? Well, Paul is pretty confident he's going to do what needs to be done. Look at verse 21. Confident of your obedience. Obedience to Paul? No. Obedience to what the love of Christ compels him to do. Paul is confident that the love of Christ in Philemon will see reconciliation all the way to the end. Not only does Paul have confidence that Philemon will forgive and welcome Onesimus back in, but he knows he's going to do so much more. You see, the love of Christ in us doesn't settle for the minimum requirement. It seeks to be generous in its application. Do you and another brother or sister in Christ have a broken relationship? Or maybe you previously had a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. Are you or were you generous in the reconciliation efforts? Or did you seek for the bare minimum? Were you okay with just being cordial? Or did you fight for more than that? Is your relationship more one of acquaintances or siblings in Christ? You don't have to look further than your own testimony to see that the love of Jesus was extremely generous. So Christians love like Jesus. As Paul closes this letter, he does so with a word of hope. Look there at the last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
what Paul has just asked is no small task. If you've ever been hurt by anyone, if anyone's ever offended you, you know that what Paul is asking is no small task. It's life-altering. It's countercultural. It requires difficult and probably awkward conversations. But the same grace of God that reconciled Philemon, Onesimus, and all the saints in the church that meets in Philemon's house is the same grace that's going to strengthen them to ensure that reconciliation happens. It's going to be the same grace that will strengthen them to seek to be reconciled for the sake of Christ's love. Brothers and sisters of Park Hills, we need this same grace. Relationships are messy because we're sinners. Our relationships are not immune from conflict because we're sinners. But relationships with all the saints are what we're called to do as co-laborers, as fellow soldiers, as family members in the family of God. It's what we're called to. And so when conflict happens and relationships begin to fracture, may the grace of our God be with your spirit. And may you fight well to reconcile for the sake of Christ's love. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your goodness towards us. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we have experienced your grace and your mercy And most importantly, we've experienced forgiveness and have been reconciled to you. We do ask that you would forgive us now if we've at any point, maybe even in this moment this morning, have withheld reconciliation from a brother or sister in Christ. Remind us of our own testimony and the generous love of Jesus. And by your spirit, would you strengthen us and give us the grace to do what you've called us to do. And may the the love that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ and show one another as brothers and sisters in Christ be a testament to the world that we are your disciples and that you reign supremely, supremely over our lives. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.